Uh, okay, and then so we'll be back the next week, which I think is November 30th. Uh, uh, but, you know, special thanks to Dr. Milner for covering this last three weeks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. Left a little bit of my Bible study there. Um, so thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it. I, well, first of all, I'm very excited for tonight being a, let me, let me just back here. How many people took any sort of like state history as a kid and learned about Pierre Marquette and, no, yes, maybe a little bit, huh? Yeah, he's forgotten. Big unit up in Wisconsin, I'll tell you. Lots, lots, I learned a lot about him as a kid. So, in fact, on my 15th wedding anniversary, we went to Quebec City. And lo and behold, whose grave is there? Exactly. Oh, yes, I was dumbfounded. Completely didn't have that, so I'm very excited. I got a picture by it, in fact. It's my picture. Perfect. By, by the gravesite, one of these. <laughs> It's somewhere. Yeah, appreciate it. So, all right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit, you may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. So I'm so glad to be back. I've been thinking about the questions you've been asking and thinking this with you, thinking through, through this topic. And I, I, I snuck a look at Pastor Nelson's Bible study notes. And, and one of the things that it said was that uh, Satan hates women. And is that not one of the re- I mean, of course, he is, hates men too. Uh, but, but this specific hatred of women, and ours is a time of profound misogyny. Profound hatred of women. And to be rather unfortunately direct about that, I mean, we're at a time where, I mean, if you hate women, the misogynist dream is to have women want to have surgeries to become men. What an awful deformation of, of, of the goodness of male and female. And so we have a time where, where women are hated like never before. Men aping women as if that's even possible. And so the urgency of attending to this matter is, has become clearer to me. And an urgency for the Lutheran tradition to do so because of the Lutheran drift that we talked about last time. So our goal today, if we can get there, and I, I've loved our tangents, so if we don't get there, that's okay. Um, but and they weren't tangents, they, they, they teased out the material. But we've talked about the basics, we've gone into the advanced, that is exactly what Luther said, and I checked some of those quotes because I was so surprised looking at them. Did I get that right on the PowerPoint? He really did say some of those beautiful things that, that have such a high Mariology that we looked at. And maybe now we're finally ready to do a little bit of the regional reflection. So we've got a twist on that which will culminate us and we can go into the Advent season and the Christmas season honoring the Virgin, our elder sister, we might say our mother in the sense that Jesus directed that to John, a representation of the church and someone who can help us in the 21st century with the unique challenges that we have. And so um, I want to start by, I noticed we have some people brought their Lutheran uh, rosary beads, the pearls of life, these are called. And so um, this is what I had in mind when you mentioned Lutheran rosary. And I went to Sweden once and somebody gave this to me and talked about how Lutherans have recovered this tradition. And it's powerful and beautiful. And if you really get into it, um, created by this Swedish Lutheran bishop, Martin Lonebo. And they're each connected. The colors are connected. The gold is God. The oblong beads are silence. The small white bead is you. The next large white bead is baptism. 
and the desert and contentment and love received and love given. It's complicated. Google it, you will find instructions. Do you use it frequently? Um, not as frequently as I should, but I do use it. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. One of the things about it is it's so new that I, I want to have as many tools in, in the, in the tool, toolbox as possible prayer-wise. But I've just, it's just like, hey, I'm praying along with uh, every Lutheran since Martin Lunabo. And, and I, I, there's something about the ancient rosary that goes back so many more hundreds of years. So use this. Maybe you will find this to be a breakthrough in your life. It's a very contemplative rosary. That is, there's time for silence and reflection. And I can't, I have, you don't really know a practice till you really do it regularly. So maybe some of us will try this. But what's interesting about the Lutheran rosary that we talked about as well is I went, you can also, this is readily Googleable. And what I found about it is that you are the people who said Lutheran rosary to me, causing me to look it up. And I realized that when I have, I, the rosary kind of never took for me. Um, and because, and so it was like, actually, you know, you're saying Hail Mary so many times. You're saying Hail Mary 10 times and the Our Father's just the one. And what is ingenious about the Lutheran, Lutheran Rosary, I'm going to walk you through it, it, it you, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, normal, but the true genius of it is that the 10 beads are not Hail Mary, but the Jesus Prayer. And you may have all known this, but this strikes me as the ideal Christocentric corrective. And in addition, one of you pointed out last time, there was a Council of Trent addition to the Hail Mary. The very point that we contested last time, when you pray to her, pray for now and in the hour of our death. And what the Lutheran Rosary instructions suggest, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to... Hail Mary, full of grace. It's just that. It just, and it ends, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. It stops there. And that's just a quote from Scripture, Luke 128. And so the Lutheran Rosary is making exactly the point that we determined collectively last time. Maybe it's not good to pray to her directly over and over again. Luther does caution against that. And so you have that completely corrected, but there's still a focus on Mary, which this one doesn't necessarily have. Very interesting. And then, beautifully enough, instead of these elaborate litanies of Loreto, which are added in the time of Catholicism reacting against Protestantism, you just pray the Magnificat, and then look at this! Martin Luther's evangelical praise of the Mother of God. This is in all the instructions that you'll find when you Google it. O Blessed Virgin, Mother of God, what great comfort God has shown us in you by so graciously regarding your unworthiness and low estate. This encourages us to believe that henceforth He will not despise us poor and lowly ones, but graciously regard us also according to your example. Perfect! So it's, the work's been done. Now, has anyone prayed this before? Has anyone used... It's, that's the thing. It's not, act, it's not, it's not happening. And so I'm committed to try it at least once. And what happens is you go through and there's a different mystery for each of the rosaries. There's four sets of mysteries. The sorrowful mysteries on certain days, the luminous mysteries. These are all Googleable too. They're very helpful. And all of those are, are meditations on gospel events. And so what I would encourage you to give it a shot because, you, again, you want as many tools as possible. One of the, the keys of prayer is sometimes we're used to a form of prayer and it's not working for us. And St. So, and, and John of the Cross says, if you keep just, I'm just going to do it anyway, it's like um, pounding the horseshoe instead of the nail. <laughs> right? You're, it's just totally ineffective. Maybe the Lord is leading you to contemplative silence. Maybe the Lord is leading you um, into, you've got to go back to deep inductive Bible study. The spiritual life is an adventure, and we, want to, and, and we don't know what's happening. So I just, I want this in, in, in my toolbox. So I'm just going to put that out there. Give it a shot. And you might say, again, even if I pray the Jesus prayer, is, is that Christocentric enough? I kid you not. 
Remember, we looked at that jet stream of blood and we connected the divine mercy image that Catholicism embraces today as a very Lutheran image because it says at the bottom, Jesus, I trust in You. And we've connected that already, that Catholic form of piety, that very Lutheran Catholic form of piety, Christocentric piety, to your window. And what's really funny is that the, the ultimate, if you want the ultimate Lutheran rosary, I actually have one with me. This is a divine mercy rosary, and every single bead says, Jesus, I trust in you. And I broke mine. I, I have a talent for breaking rosary. So. Um, but in that, I mean, there it is. Like Christ is at the center. It's just something to do with your hands. Your hands are like mine. They're used to thumbing through a phone, right? Doing stuff all the time. And if you activate those hands, it can assist in deeper realms of prayer. Make sense? So anyway, we get to the bottom of that. I'm grateful for you for causing me to, to, to do that. So grab a rosary, give it a shot. I think we can say with the Lutheran rosary, there, there, I cannot think of a possible qualm that Luther would have with that and that we could have with that as people in the Protestant Reformation. Do you disagree? I mean, it's just so clear. There's nothing unscriptural about it. So all that to say, give it a shot and um, explain to people, hey, I'm doing the Lutheran rosary here, okay? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I got mine on Etsy for like 30 bucks and it was handmade by a seemingly very nice lady from Carolina. So if anyone's interested, Etsy. Okay, you've got a connection. So there we go. So if you want, if you want to get, I mean, I have both, right? Have it all. This is, ah, it's just, and, you know, and, and have this stuff lying around. It reminds you to pray. Lonabo found, when he invented this, he was in Greece, and he saw all the men there. It's very masculine, right? All these men that just click beads in Greece all the time. Just go in the cafes. Right? We've got to bring that back in America. We've got a bunch of men clicking beads. Go ahead. Just a quick comment about what you're teaching us since it's going to be the last night. Sir, is it just a big ordeal right now with those beads of what's happening right now with the religious segment all around the world coming against this type of belief, mystic God believing with these beads? Is it, is it becoming something more threatening to the Fair point. world person? Because I'm feeling like this is something this, yeah. they don't want to do away with because of where it leads you to. It can. Awareness of God and people don't want to know that. Well, and there's something, if physical, external, can it become a stumbling block? Can it become idolatrous? Of course, everything can, right? But even if it is being misused, I would say reclaim it, reclaim it. You know what I'm saying? That, so that, that would be my response to that. I'm sure, you know, you could, but I don't think it's, I mean, beads are, this, they're innocent, right? And they can be, in this case, activated. So none of us, it sounds like, has had experiment with this. Only one of us pointed to, I mean, except we got one person who's tried this kind. So just know it's out there and, and think about it. So, and and if, if that causes you to stumble, Christian freedom. Martin Luther, Christian freedom. Don't, just don't, don't worry about it. Go ahead. Quick comment on the, uh, everyone hating on women. Yeah. It's actually a Miss Netherland contest that was won by a dude who identified as a woman. Come on. This is a, this is a, a travesty mockery, as I heard someone say once. It's an absolute travesty and a mockery at once. And our job and part of the vocation of men, and yes, people get overboard with chivalry and, and go too far, but our vocation as men is to defend and honor the female. And that has been neglected to, a great, to, to an extent. It's not our only job, right? But this should shock us to a certain extent. And instead of just getting angry, right, we can say, well, maybe it's time to, to revive a proper Lutheran devotion to the Virgin. I'm so glad you pointed that out. And so, gosh, and that's, and that's why, and again, one of the things we talked about before is that um, men who have a difficulty relating with women, which we all do if we're honest, right, it's a challenge. It causes us to humble ourselves and to realize the mystery of the other gender that we are not a part of. Um, and as you do this, the Virgin Mary can assist, can assist. She's in the church for a reason. So what we did last time in order to do, take part of this recovery, I don't know of any books that have done this, so I'm kind of you know, scratch, you know, trying to blaze some trails on my own. We took this image of 
the Orthodox icon with God the Father with the tablets of the law at the top, and we flipped our law gospel image, and we talked about the descent into the gospel. So we changed the horizon around a little bit. So that was one of the things that we looked at. A little convoluted, but nevertheless, don't ascend into trying to reach God on your own. Descend into the, the burning bush, the gospel, at the bottom. So that was a way of taking an Orthodox icon and, and reading it in a Lutheran way. Remember, we looked at the empty hands in this beautiful image at the Rijksmuseum. Instead of coming to Jesus with things to offer Him, look at the good boy I've been. Instead, it's, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. Instead, your hands who have been pierced, and one of you pointed to the, the elusive sense almost of the side wound in Jesus there. And I, that, that really preaches to me as a gorgeously Lutheran understanding of this. And finally, we looked at this astonishing and famous image, and we contemplated how Magdalena Luther and her death is connected. There's the woman looking out at this, the girl, because she has died, and the in profound grief that Luther experienced because of this. And we thought of Luther's Mariology. Uh, Mary would have been, biblical scholars tell us, about this age, right? 14 to 16, give it 13 to 16. And so we thought that this is a Mariology for every woman, for every woman. Not just this exalted virgin, but a virgin who's the exemplar of faith for all of us. So there's a dimension here I think it's fair to say we need. We looked at those. Remember, we looked at the Lutheran drift. Why does Mary stop being attended to, even though she initially was the marker that you're not a radical Anabaptist? You still believe and care about Mary. And then we saw how because of Catholic aggression is essentially this, the, the answer. Um, and there was a sense in which to, be, to distinguish Lutherans from Catholics, we got rid of her altogether. So I had a couple of feedback from you by email and things of that kind, um, which was exciting because some of the things that, that you picked up on in conversations with Catholic friends. And so I want to say a couple things. Um, this book was written about 10 years ago, The Unintended Reformation by a historian, massive book, um, who basically a Catholic historian who made the case that it's, it's, the, it's the Protestants' fault that the modern world is the way it is. And he nuanced that to death, but that's what he's getting at. And what's so interesting is, and Brad Gregory is a great scholar, don't get me wrong, he's not, he's, he's not simplistic. I think we are all in a, a predicament of modernity with all of its dangers together. But what I want to simply say to give you a little peek behind the curtain of academia is I think since this book has written, this has happened. <laughs> All of a sudden, the, yeah, the Protestants look a little better. And I want to tell you about some books that do that, that have responded to this aggressive argument. One of those books is Martin Luther's Theology of Beauty by Mark Mattis. Have you, have you ever looked at it? It's amazing. And he basically says, like, I won't go into the academic details, but he says, are you kidding me? Luther didn't have a sense of beauty. He has a glorious sense of beauty. He says, not only is, but what difference is, is that the cross is at the center. And the cross of Jesus is a strange beauty. But so also is the cross that God is imposing on all sinners' lives to lead them to the mercy found in Christ. God painfully tears down the castles sinners build so as to rebuild those sinners to be men and women of faith. So he's saying Luther has this rich understanding of beauty, but you have to see that there's never this, I'm going to get to God through beauty. I have to go through the cross as a sinner. It's beautifully done. That's what the argument of the entire book says. And that rebuilding project of the gospel is laden with beauty, and especially because it's not based upon our own efforts. So I love pointing this out. There's a wonderful two-volume series called Justification by a scholar named Michael Horton. And it's so wonderful because if you're ever... If you ever hear someone blame Luther for being what is called a nominalist, 
which is you give up on the universal truths and you instead say everything can just be reduced to its name. There's not a universal that holds it together in the mind of God. The Catholic accusation is that that is what Luther brought into the world. <laughs> it's such a silly understanding. And therefore, the world went secular. Well, there's a brilliant response to that. And what Horton basically says is that don't say that. Luther, first of all, every time he attacks scholasticism, as he often does, he's attacking nominalism. He inherited that from Catholicism and pushes against it. It's really beautifully done. And I, there's more I could say about this. It's wonderful. I wouldn't have brought up this academic material other than to say it sounds like some of you are real, in real interesting conversations. And some of you asked me for pictures of this from Daphne Hampson's book. And so I just wanted to say there's a lot out there that this is easy to understand. Remember we mentioned that. You're making, you're, you're going to get a paycheck at the end of time for the good works that you've done. It makes sense to the human mind. It makes, certainly makes sense to the human heart. You're on your way to God, accruing merit as you go with infused grace. And we contrasted that with the much harder to understand, not because it's intellectually complicated, because it goes against the human heart, the Lutheran understanding. And those two things at the top, I love this analogy. You go to the library, you get a book. Is that book yours? It is not. It belongs to Wheaton Public Library. You go to the bookstore or Amazon, you get a book, it belongs to you. And what Hampson is saying is this is the difference between Lutheran and Catholic understandings. In this understanding, you are actually, the, the, um, the, the library book belongs to you. You, you bought it. You got it from, from the used book sale. It, it is now yours. In the Lutheran understanding, it always belongs to Jesus. It, is, it belongs to the library, and you get to borrow it. So I think there's something beautiful about that. So these are some of the ways that people put this together. And so this is the paradox of you're both sinful and justified at the same time. And again, we cited that Horton book. You are mystically contained in Jesus, right? You are in Christ, saying in Ephesians over and over again. So that's what we pointed to, and we saw how it's that, Ill, that is in the law gospel panels that we looked at. Now I want to say a couple of things as we push the ball down the field um, toward, toward the conclusion. Why is it that Mark Mattis, in this book, doesn't draw on any Lutheran images of the Virgin? He shows us this beautiful image it's a well-chosen one. I love this image. It's at the Louvre. It's by Angeron de Carton, and it shows the Apostle John almost playing Jesus' halo like a harp. Isn't that gorgeous? And what you see in the back is the city of Constantinople, which had fallen just at this time and became Istanbul when the Muslims took it over. And... Whew, man, think of current events, right? Think of, think of the, the tragedy that the globe is going through. And there's that lamentation, and there's the Virgin Mary. But I think the very fact that this Catholic image was chosen shows you, just even by Lutherans, how forgotten this glorious altarpiece, this Lutheran altarpiece that we looked at last time is. People just don't know that these things exist. And I just want to read the inscription again. The sweetly blessed and sanctified Virgin Mary is a paragon of the church who through the power of the Holy Ghost shall be crowned in heaven with eternal, with eternal glory by God the Father for His Son's sake. Let's zoom in even closer. So this is in your tradition. Celebrate it, honor it, and again, Pastor Nelson, this is for you. You've got to see this. It's just too good. I, wanted to, I, I surprised you all with this. We, look at, we looked at this image of a law gospel with Mary and the cross, and then Marilyn Graham, the prophet, showed us how it disappeared. It dis, it's gone. It's gone in the calendar. And tell me your name again, forgive me. And Max saved us by at least saying maybe it's just that her body had, had, had ascended into glory. 
which, which does, which, we, we save the appearances. So, but, but it is bizarre, isn't it, that, that we've lost this culture of the virgin, which if Satan hates women, this is good, but we can't let him win there, right? We've got to recover this understanding. And I want to mention, um, remember when I hesitated because I was reading this and I was saying, wait, did I get that wrong? I checked it. This is correct. Luther says in the commentary on the Magnificat, we ought to call upon her that for her sake, God may grant and do what we do and what we, what we request. That's what it says. I was like, she still gets honor. I was astonished. I was, I mean, it's not a typo. She really, I mean, he really says that she deserves a degree of honor in, in the Lutheran tradition, which, which gives me, don't you love giving other people honor? This is why envy is hell, right? Something good happens to someone else. I wanted that to happen to me, right? That is the danger of the sinful human heart. But when something good happens to someone else and you say, good for you. Good for you, right? And that's in some sense, she gets that legitimate honor and it should cause us to rejoice. So I think why does Luther hold on to this? What's becoming clearer to me the more I understand the medieval tradition is he's simply so well-formed by the tradition that came before him. And essentially that tradition, today we sometimes might limit our understanding of Mary to the historical Right, let me get out my Bible commentary and my Raymond Brown, Birth of the Messiah, and my historical critical exegetes and find out, what was Mary like back then? That's what, the way we fight through the Bible today. But back in the ancient church that Luther inherited, they had that. They would never deny the historical reality of Mary. But they also had this. Not just the Gospel of Luke, but the Gospel of John, where she operates in some senses almost as a symbol. And that's not a reduction of her. And then in the Song of Songs, Mary is understood as an emblem of the church. And then even in Proverbs 8, this understanding of wisdom, they had such a wide sense. So it used to be, right, in archery, right, you either get a bullseye or you're not a good archer, but you can kind of hit them all. Right? There's di- so that's what Luther is inheriting. And why does he do it? Is it because he just inherited the Middle Ages? He wasn't a good enough Lutheran yet, so we had to come along and correct it? No. Where he gets it from is where the Middle Age got it from, which is Scripture. Jeremiah 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Ezekiel 16, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And Revelation 12 that we looked at before, the woman clothed with the sun. The people of God are personified as female. Men too, the bride of Christ. So that's why Luther can't let that go. Isn't that good? Right? Here's how Augustine puts it, right? The church is the mother of Christ. And I love, you want it, you want it. This is, I, I, I talked about last time about Luther's Mary is, she's the model for mysticism. That is, let's just, don't get hung up by the word, it's just deep, deep prayer. And he gets that from Augustine. When you look with wonder on what happened to Mary, you must imitate her in the depths of your own souls. And talk about making every Lutheran heart in the world cheer. Whoever believes with all his heart and is justified by faith, he has conceived Christ in the womb. Bam! Augustine, Luther, Paul, all illustrated by the Virgin. Come on! How can we say no to this? And so we saw Mary as the exemplar of faith. So that's where we've been thus far. Before we get to Marquette, and this will take us home, questions about that, comments for any further clarification. Go ahead, Max. Dr. Matthew. Just call me Matt. Okay, sir, <laughs> this is, no, sir, because this is where you give honor. Oh. I, I don't have 
Oh, you're kind, Max. Thank you. Something big about marriage, sir, because I've overlooked it, and it's like something is happening to me concerning her. Good. Lost mark, sir. Can you comment on to us, sir? First of all, where's it just prophesied about this woman, Mary, being picked for a certain reason because of a certain thing happening? Yeah. But we forgot. I forgot about that prophecy, but. Yeah. Now you're coming to talk about Mary. Sir, can you comment just yeah. a little bit and add to specifically why she was picked? Yeah. Wasn't there something honorable yeah. about her? Absolutely. It had to be for her to have and bring our Creator to us? Yes. Everything you just said. It's not just, you know, this is not Ezekiel. Yeah. Ex John. Precisely. Matthew, Mark, Paul. Yeah. The, not even Jesus himself. This is a woman. Yeah. They talked about her. They, 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 the prophets pointed away from themselves toward her. Exactly. Because she is the gate through which God came into the world. And so you might say, okay, we all know that, right? Prophecy, right? A, you know, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Fair, right? In Isaiah. But this is even bigger than that. Because it's not just plan B. It's like, oh no, the world has fallen. Uh, okay, how about virgin conceives and bears a son? The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From the beginning, God planned to be incarnate. I am a uh, post-lapsarian. Like I, I I'm sorry, I'm a super-lapsarian. I'm not a post-lapsarian, which means that I think God planned to be incarnate before the fall. Before the fall, supra-lapse, not post-lapsarian. And I get it from Revelation. And that means that somehow in the mystery of providence, he always planned to become human and therefore he always planned to have a mom. That's big. That's big. And he always planned to have you and I to be a part of it. The church. The church. It's big. It's very big. It's very big. So you can see why the Catholics gave so much honor to her. And let's be, for a moment, be self-critical. Maybe they were right to go overboard in the honor because part of the church wasn't giving her honor. Now, they went too far, without question. But maybe our job is to catch up a little bit instead of pointing the finger to them. Say, all right, I'm going to have a little icon of the Virgin Mary in my home. Let people know she's honored in this home. They're easy to pick up, by the way, right? They get a good one. Get, and we'll look at which ones you might get. We're going to look at some Lutheran examples. Go ahead. Could you go back to your quote of Luther? Yeah. So we ought to call upon ourselves, but I guess a practical question for you, good American. That, I have to say that, what does that mean? I mean, that makes me a little nervous, I guess, when we say call upon, right? Yeah. It dawned on me, yeah. I remember distinctly from my Lutheran confirmation class, our pastor went up yeah. way to say that the, the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed was simply a description of the Holy Christian Church that preceded it, that that, that was just sort of a a description that there was no that, that the communion of saints was nothing about what I think the church yeah. has believed the communion of saints to be. So to call upon her or to I know, to, I know. What, and it, what form does that take? I mean, yeah, that <clears throat> I am. Yeah. I let, okay, let me be cautious here, because on the one hand, you see why the Lutherans had to systematize a relatively inconsistent Luther, because he's going against her and then saying for her. As he responds, as we remember, the rule that we came up with last time, he's pastorally nimble. He's saying, tear down that idolatrous image. In some cases, it should be destroyed. And in other cases, he's saying this. And so I can see why our authors of the catechism said, okay, we've, we've got to get this right. Just don't call upon her. But again, Christian freedom. Um, can I have a special relationship with a brother or sister in Christ where I'm saying, I really need you to pray for me right now. I really need your assistance. And why would death necessarily extinguish that bond? And so, again, I, we're be, I know it's so tricky, right? You, you all have to work this out. But at the same time, based upon this, um, can a, a man, I mean, we all know we have wounds in our lives, men in particular, that may be inflicted by women, right? Not always very popular to talk about that. 
women talk about the wounds that men inflict upon them. What about the wounds women inflict on us? It's all happened. Is it possible that devotion of the Virgin Mary could play a role in healing that? Ah, I know it gets a little nervous, but, but we, it seems to be authorized to an extent. That having been said, okay, I'm going to go to one side of the mystery there. Now I'm going to completely pull back to what you said. In what I advocated just now for the rosary, I said don't call upon her, right? Especially not a hundred times as you would if you did the Catholic rosary. That's why I'm more comfortable with the Jesus prayer and the pre-Tridentine Hail Mary. But even Luther's prayer didn't show yeah. Yeah, not a prayer. It's a it's a what was it? Yeah. Yeah, this is the O oh, Blessed Virgin. This one? Yeah, O oh, Blessed Virgin, Mother of God. What great comfort God has shown us in you. So it's addressing her. By so graciously regarding your unworthiness and low estate. Now this is, the, this is the shift. This encourages us to believe that henceforth He will not despise us poor and lowly ones, but graciously regard us also according to your example. Very clever. It kind of, it kind of threads the needle, doesn't it? It's almost a conversation. It, oh, thank you. Exactly. But isn't it wonderful to have... So maybe um, there's a wonderful poem by John... Uh, Keeble, the Anglican poet, um, that beautiful, it's called Mother, My Mother Isn't Here. And it's talking about the lack of the Virgin Mary in Anglicanism. And it says the following words, to kneel with her and call her blessed. Not to her, to kneel with her. But now all of a sudden the room fills out. And it's, and so maybe to imagine and that she's with us with our prayers, encouraging us to go to Christ. So again, we're in, we're in wonderfully um, uh, murky territory here as, as we try to push this through. I'm glad you pushed back on that. Go ahead. So my mother was a staunch Catholic. Uh-huh. And uh, said, you know, you shouldn't be praying to Mary or the saints. Yeah. I said, well, don't you ask your friends yeah. for her help? Yeah. Yeah, well then, and, and I can pray to Mary and ask her for help. Yeah. And as long as you don't worship her. Exactly. And it seems that premised upon, and I'll be honest with you, this is kind of some, I mean, not my, we, our job is not to drive Roman Catholics crazy, um, but it does sometimes drive them crazy when you say, oh, I see your point. Yeah, I can do that as a Lutheran, right? And so, so we have that, that um, we can, we can uh, uh, go in that mode. I mean, here, here uh, Pastor Nelson was the, was the only person at Holy Hill, a Marian pilgrimage site in Wisconsin, as a Lutheran, right? It, you experienced this. And, and you didn't, you know, w what was that like? Well, I'm a good Lutheran, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I caused a lot of confusion. <laughs> the, um, I, I, I'm very comfortable there. It's, it's very comfortable. Yeah. Because uh, I have a good relationship with Mary. So. Um, yeah, well, the one thing I would say is, you know, what's interesting is that. We often will muddle Roman Catholic theology with biblical theology. We have to distinguish this because in the, in the Lutheran Confessions, Article 22 of the Augsburg Confession, it says that the saints pray for us in heaven. Huh. The question is a question of dogma. Am I certain that those in heaven hear my request? For them to pray for me. Well, I can't say with 100% certainty that they do, because the Bible doesn't say that with 100% certainty. But using logic, that, you know, if I ask Ron over here to pray for me, I'm going to trust that he will. Yeah. Well, now that someone is in heaven, I feel like they're probably more trustworthy than the guy next to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but then also, we have to understand that Ron doesn't pray on his own, but he prays in Christ through 
with Jesus, which, of course, is precisely what they're doing in heaven. So our only connection with people is always through Christ, right? Like my relationship exactly. with Paul here, with you, with Chris, everybody. Our relationship is always through Christ, and that doesn't necessarily change when someone goes to, to heaven. You're still related yeah. to Christ. In fact, I mean, that's the old church architecture. If anybody grew up, I mean, my grandparents in their own country church are buried up behind the altar because what's in between us and those in the cemetery is the altar, is Jesus. So that's, so we still relate to Jesus. Yeah. But the question is a question of dogma and certainty, and what is most certain is Jesus. And, and, and so that's why we always we turn to that. So, um, which is, is a, a distinction of the Roman Catholics. They, they have a different dogma. Well, if I had to take the nuance of what Pastor Nelson just said, it would look like the Lutheran Rosary. Like with those ten, you know, directing to Jesus, but Mary is still clearly in the room. Right? And for the recording, he said he has a good relationship with the Virgin Mary. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have a very good relationship with the Virgin Mary. <laughs> um, yeah, but the thing, too, though, is that, you know, just from a biblical perspective, and I don't know what we said last week, but, you know, uh, Mary is the ultimate disciple. Yeah. Yeah. She's the ultimate Christian. Mm. And so, you know, it's kind of a guy, that's the person I want on my team. Totally. Yeah, she's she's a first draft pick. Go ahead. My core problem is that do you pray to Mary and the saints because you think you're praying to Jesus and he's not going to answer you? Yeah. Yeah. There it is, right? And that would be, I think, where, where the Lutheran ire would be stirred. Uh, when you think it's because... It's, um, it's a workaround. And I kid you not, um, the Catholic theology at its apex in regard to Mariology, um, Alfonso Liguri said, we go to Mary to catch Christ on His weak side. Yeah. And that's the problem. And that problem has been um, in, in still printed to this day Catholic devotional manuals. Ah, you're gonna, Jesus is finally going to cave because mom's around. Okay, you know, and it's a failure to understand the mercy of Christ. Now, if you don't have that misunderstanding, I think where this is where I feel that we've arrived. Then it is possible. Going back to the Robert Jensen quote, God is um, the saints are not our way to God. God is our way to them. Right. Once we trust in the mercy of God, then the room fills out with the communion of saints. Yes, sir. So you just mentioned the not trusting in the mercy of Christ. Essentially, what I was going to ask is, it seems like going through the saints of any type is, I, I'm not really sure God loves me enough to listen to me. Oh, yes, and that would be a failure to trust the mercy of Christ. But in th- 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 yeah, that is, that can't, that if that's why you're going to the saints, stop and re-tutor your heart in, in the mercy of God. And I think that if this is true, right, all are in Christ. The saints are in there with you. But if that's what we're missing, and I feel like in, in my sense is that these three weeks, together, collectively, we've come to that understanding. If, and remember our illustration of that, Jesus up there and Mary bearing her breast because you wouldn't go straight to Christ. That's what Luther's rightly critiquing. And if I may be so bold, that's not just for Lutherans. The whole church needs to know that. So the Lutherans need to hold up that torch so that the Catholics return to it, and many of them have. Right? B- b- very important. Sir, one more comment. Please, Max. Got a year here learning about this Lutheran religion. But what I'm seeing right here now about you, sir, about Mary, what our pastor, I wanted to comment after him because our pastor's coming with something teaching us about Bible said about family. Yeah. Sir, we don't see Mary. It's our, our, it's our family. Disciple. Our number one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why Jesus came and portrayed that look. Yeah. And then he turned around and said, Now you love the bride like. Yes. Church. Yes. And here's the image I'm going to give you. 
Yeah. Me, my mom, and this dad that just who <laughs> the world. Yes. And I'll portray that beauty within you guys yourself. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm in 2023, sir. I'm not back then Lutheran. I'm in right. November 16, 2023. Right. What does a church look like today with Mary loving each other as a family? Because if we don't see that, okay. part, now, we're not going to be family. Now that is the perfect transition. I mean, what's happening here? Okay. Let's, let's talk about 2023. We've got to. We're in the last 15 minutes of this session. We've got to get to the bottom of it. How, yeah. Yeah, well, let's look at Let's find it. How, does we, how do we fill out the, the family of God? Everyone at the Thanksgiving table. Mom is no longer has to eat by herself. You know, she's, she's welcome back in. And that's where I think this plays in. So you know the journey. So he leaves. And by the way, his body, Marquette's body, if you ever want to see it, you can now see it. Since 2022, it's been returned to Ignis, Michigan. And so it's there now. It was returned by Marquette University. Um, so he died, in, he, he died in Ludington, and then they took his body back there, and it was only returned two years, I mean, well, last year. Incredible. And so the journey is, is that he's up here on Lake Superior. He gets word, Father Marquette, by, from an Illini boy at the mission that there's a big river down here and you got to go find it. And so he gets permission. He departs from the UP, the Straits of Mackinac. Anyone been to Mackinac Island? The, the great, you know, it's like, go there for the hotel. But I'm like, fine, enjoy that. But make your way across the channel to go visit this hugely important site, the Marquette site there. He makes his way. He discovers, quote-unquote, the Mississippi River, and as we discussed before, he calls it the River of the Immaculate Conception. Now, this is a danger for Lutherans who aren't going to make that a dogma that it became in 1854, even though Luther believed it. But this is a great moment. I was sitting, I don't think I told you this story, I was sitting at a men's camping trip for All Souls, men's little retreat we do on the Mississippi Bluffs. Hot tip, best campsite in this area I've ever seen is Nelson Dewey State Park. If you can get the bluff sites at Nelson Dewey, it's eagles fly below you, below you. It's unbelievable. So we're there as the eagles fly below us. They, they didn't, this last time, they didn't, oh, they didn't start flying until we started praying. It was amazing. For, for our, and, and so we're, we're, we're there, and we were talking about that this river used to be called that. And one of the friends said, hey, you know, I've been to the place where... The Mississippi begins. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you know what he said? He said, wow, what a huge thing that comes from something so small. And then all of a sudden, the penny dropped and we said, that's the Virgin Mary. Right? What an amazing redemption comes from such a lowly woman. So the Midwestern spirituality I, whether or not you believe in the Immaculate Conception, you do, if you're a Christian, believe in the virgin birth. And I'm like, I want to think of the Mississippi River that way, right? I want to think of it that way. And by the way, the east and the west branch of the DuPage and the little Mesopotamia that we live in goes into the DuPage, into the Des Plaines, into the Illinois, into the Mississippi. So you're in that watershed. So think about it in regard to the Gospel, okay? So Marquette discovers this, breaks through the Wisconsin, goes down, he goes all the way to St. Louis. He goes beyond that. He's told the Spaniards are going to get you if you keep going. He turns up. He makes his way up, and he does the famous portage. Brand new book on the portage, by the way. It's a little dry, but it walks you through all the details. Of, and this is the statue you see when you go there. And the portage where he goes from the Des Plaines, he never makes it to the DuPage River, but he unfortunately, but he makes it to the Des Plaines, and this is the spot. If you just cross here, Father Marquette, you'll make your way to Lake Michigan, but Lake Michigan is no longer there because all of the streets that have been added since, but it would have just been a little swamp walk with the canoes. Then he gets to Lake Michigan itself, and that's pretty much a straight shot back to Ignis, where it came from. And so what happens is this. 
on that trip 350 years ago, he sees, and you can see it in Alton, Illinois, a replica of what we would have seen. He saw these, these pictographs of underwater panthers. And that betrays to me that he knew that there was a menacing sense of evil in the indigenous culture that he was there to preach to. They did not have the gospel. They did not have the message of Jesus who overcame evil for them. In fact, lest anyone romanticize Native Americans, as it's very happy to do, I remember opening up a, a uh, Illinois tourism board and, oh, we've neglected the Native Americans. If only we knew the splendor that was here. Go to Cahokia and engage in the spirituality of the ancient Native Americans. Well, this is an image, if you've been to Cahokia, of their society, aggressively hierarchical. And this is an image of Mound 72. And Mound 72 is where, this is an artist's recreation of it, where we found the public, talk about hating women, the public strangulation of four women at a time, and then seven women at a time in public ceremonies, and then 19 ritually murdered women, all the way up to 53. So don't tell me that this society didn't need the gospel as much as ours does right now. That's the reality of Cahokia. And so Marquette, go, and I'm, that's not all of it, right? It's also, there's beauty in that society. But human sacrifice happened in Illinois, and we got to tell that story because the gospel is an improvement. <laughs> so all this to say, Marquette canoes past there. Um, he, he does, he's not dealing, Cahokia by this time has long expired. But he's dealing with the Illini. And he gets, he meets them. He meets a subset of the Illini and they say, would you please come back? Would you please come back? Joliet goes all the way, Joliet goes all the way back where you saw him buried. Although he was lost at sea, they probably, you know, given a marker of one kind or another. So, but Marquette winters in Chicago, and you can actually see the place where he wintered. Um, there's, a little, there's a little plaque that, that is visitable today. Um, kind of lonely, doesn't get many visitors, which is good because otherwise it'll get torn down by some mob. Um, and so there is, yeah. And so, so Marquette, Marquette winters in Chicago, goes back to Xavier, Wisconsin, stays a little bit, he's recovering, recuperating his health, and then he returns to this area, so we have more time to celebrate it and think about it, in 1675. Oh, there's, there's the marker, I took a quick picture of it, um, in where, where he wintered in the south side of Chicago. And so he makes his way back in 75, and on that particular journey, they receive him. So he comes back in 65, and at the very least 1,500 men, which like in the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking possibly up to 4,000 people. This was like meeting an alien, right? He's returned! This white guy we never saw before is incredible. And he proclaimed the gospel to them. And he conducted the Mass in 1675. They loved this story. This all survives in the Jesuit relations. At the Marquette building in Chicago, which is a wonderful building, very much worth visiting. Next time you're downtown, just make a little stop. It's a beautiful place. And inside are these glorious Tiffany mosaics. And it's there for you to see, okay? This, these last 10 minutes of this are to get you to find and enjoy these sites so that there can be a Marian dimension to your life here. They're gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. So he has this successful experience, and then they love him so much that as he's going back to Ignis, he gets sick and dies, and they fight over his body because they want, it, they, want it, they want to keep it. So they love this gospel that he proclaimed. Now, how am I going to turn this around to the Virgin Mary? The record says this. 
there were four images of the Virgin Mary that he set up when he conducted the Mass in Utica, Illinois, which you can visit the site today. There's a Catholic church there, but it's basically an archaeological site. Utica, Illinois, not very far away. So he sets up four images of the Virgin Mary, and that's one of the reasons they listened. We don't know what those images were, and I'm going to take that hole and drive a truck through it <laughs> and say, so why don't we, who want to think about Mary in a Lutheran way, find four images in Chicago that illustrate everything we've talked about? And that's going to be our grand finale, okay? All of these images you can see next time you're at the Art Institute of Chicago, okay? So we're going to do four. So I've been thinking about what we've wrestled with, thinking about the, the saints aren't our way to God, but God is our way to them. Jensonian Lutheran theology we've been discussing. And here's what I came up with, all right? So, here we go. Now, not going to go with... Anyone remember when this was floating around? This massive statue of the Virgin Mary? Not going to go with that. That's now at the Shrine of Christ's Passion, Our Lady of the Millennium, right? <laughs> I'm not going to go with... Our Lady of Chicago at St. John Cantus Church. We mentioned that before. Um, you know, there's a bunch I'm not going to go with that are beautiful in their own way, but when we, I want something especially Lutheran. And here is what I've come up with. So, number one. We want a Mary connected to the cross. With the cross at the center. Not her merits. But Jesus is. And as you go through the Art Institute and the African galleries, there's a beautiful, famous... The heart of the African galleries is Christian because of the Ethiopians. Praise God. And this one's good because it's got the, the cross to the right, which is nice, but not enough. Not enough. We need something a little more aggressive <laughs> with cross right at the center. Okay? This one's great by Correggio because... John the Baptist, you can see, he, the cross is right by his head. He's presenting the cross to Jesus. So that's pretty good. But still, not enough. We need Mary and the cross in an undeniably exaggerated upfront way. Going to go with this. You'll see it in the medieval galleries. Because it's got Mary and the cross is just as big. It's a diptych from the 13th century. So that's going to be my number one. A very Lutheran, very Lutheran, cross-centered image. Okay, number two. Again, we're projecting and imagining because these Marquette images don't survive. There's a Lutheran way to think about them, to think about Mary in this land. Number two, commentary on the Magnificat. We should say, Blessed Virgin, Mother of God, you were nothing and all despised, yet God in His grace regarded and did such a great work in you. And I think of Savonarola, who Luther loved, who converted the man who painted this, Alessandro Botticelli, and Botticelli started to paint non-pornographic images instead, and one of them is at the Art Institute. You'll see it in the Renaissance galleries, and what do I love about it? The blood of Christ mediates between him and his mom. All <laughs> right. No going to Christ without the blood. And I know that's not blood, but it's pretty exaggerated there. That red goes through the whole body. Okay, so that's number two. You'll see it in the Renaissance galleries. Okay, number three. This mystical sense of in Christ, there's a brand new image in the Art Institute's collection. And the darkness of the cross and where is Mary? She's just fused with the work of Christ. I, I just, this, this, I, I, I love that, right? She cannot be understood outside of the frame of the cross. And number four, this is the keeper. And you've got to see this one when you go. In our, in our concluding minute, I'm going to do a shot at the buzzer here. Law gospel. Do we have one at the Art Institute? Wait for it. You ready? 1502, before the Reformation. 
Look at the figure on the left and the right. What are they doing? They're in total despair. Why? Because they're looking to their own sin. Even this guy, even, even the righteous thief is looking down. And then Lucas Cronach, our buddy, our guy who made this, and Luther's buddy too, Lucas Cronach then met Luther. And what did he do? He gave us the most Lutheran painting at the Art Institute of Chicago. And what you can see is that we go from this to this and look at the faces. This guy is now looking down, but this guy, he is looking to the Lord. That's Lutheran theology. He's looking away from himself. And where's the Virgin Mary? She's right there at the bottom. She's elderly. She's human. She's not exalted. She's suffering as the world suffers right now, as we should suffer right now. So that's, that's the four. I stop there. we got to pray. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for being here.